Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Happy December, everybody. Um, I don't know if that's a saying that people say or a greeting, but, you know, we're going to roll with it. So welcome to this week's Tej Talks podcast. And this week we have Adam Lawrence on the show. He's just an overall nice guy and he really knows his stuff. And I think that's, you know, really highlighted by the fact that he has a portfolio of 150 properties. He's JV'd with a lot of people. Um, His portfolio is worth over £10 million with his JV partners. The total rent roll is £800,000 a year. I'm just going to skip past that. But yes, I just said £800,000 a year, his share being half of that. That's pretty awesome. What makes it even more awesome is he's bought 55 of these 150 in the last year. So, you know, this isn't a kind of 10-year portfolio build. He's done this pretty quickly. And we spoke about integrity in property education, um, how to assess and, I guess, sort of structure JV partners, but also how on earth has he built such a portfolio so quickly? And this one is full of knowledge. So, as usual, uh, please like, review, share, subscribe. Adam's giving away two half-an-hour consultations too. If you write a review and just send me a message and let me know, I'll enter you into the competition. So here we go. Adam Lawrence, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thanks very much, Tej. So I think it's an interesting where we met. I I turned up to one of your partners and property events in Birmingham, you and Sue Sims host. Um, Wonderful event, if anyone's listening. It's catered, which for me says it all. Um, Winner, winner. Um, And you were quite interesting. You had some interesting kind of uh, opinions and views in your you know, career in property. Um, it you know, spans across a few different sectors. Um, and our mutual friend Shabazz then said, look, Ted, you need to speak to Adam. You know, his story is amazing. I know you guys know each other fairly well. So, you know, before you were in property, what were you doing with your life? Thanks, Ted. And thanks for uh, the big up on partners in property as well. We, Sue and I have been running it for uh, just over a year now. And we've been really enjoying what we've been doing. Um, so in the run up to property, well, I mean, I bought my first property about 16 or 17 years ago. And I think it was 2002. So I have been involved in some way, shape or form, although I've only really been taking it seriously for about the last seven or eight years. Um, so career prior to that is pretty unique, really, to be honest, um, across between, um, entrepreneurial and the bits where I have worked in organizations have been related to finance, wealth management, um, numbers related finance jobs, really. Um, but largely speaking on a bit of both, really Uh, unemployable these days, I think, to be honest, (laughs) So then what was that defining moment or or person or thing that made you say, you know what, I'm going to get into property full time now? I've kind of dabbled with it here and there, like kind of a lot of people do. What kind of flicked the switch for you? I think really it was it was a conspiracy of circumstances, I suppose. Um, like a lot of quite serious property people, my first investment property was my old residence. So I was an accidental landlord. Um, this was back in sort of 2008, split up with a partner at the time, uh, was left with, would, had made all the mistakes you can really make in one go, um, bought a new build property at the top of the market in 2006, um, part exchanged my partner at the time's property to get into it, and then was stuck with it languishing on the market in 2008 when we split up not really realizing quite how badly the bottom had fallen out of the market. Um, so ultimately at that point, it was being, we were then blackmailed into letting the corporate agent that were trying to sell it for us, um, let it for us under a full management contract. That just went appallingly really, to be honest. So I decided pretty quickly that I was going to have to be um, the one who looked after the tenancy rather than trusting an agent to do it for me. And then from there, um, 
picked up another couple of properties in the next couple of years, trying to be intelligent, um, bought one in, uh, agreed a deal in May 2009, which did look pretty clever afterwards because it really was the bottom of the market, certainly was round, round in South Birmingham where I live. Um, and then another one in early 2010, which was a sort of, it certainly had half an eye on investment, but it was also due to um, a family situation at the time, so it kind of made sense. And then I was chopping and changing really what I was doing and had a lot of success in fits and starts in my career. Um, but I had I was lucky enough to have some capital built up and thought, right, what's the best way to invest this capital? I suppose primarily I was thinking, what's the best way to do it so I never have to work again? Um, and it wasn't so much that I could do that very easily, unfortunately. So I thought, right, I, I really need to start taking this property thing a bit more seriously. Um, my dad was a tax and trusts advisor, and he suggested maybe one night we go to um, an independent property meeting locally over in Warwickshire because um, he was looking to do a bit more business. And he knew that I obviously had a couple of investment properties and was maybe interested in hearing some more. And that was the that was the start of uh, my interest really being peaked when I met a few of the interesting people out there on the circuit and heard what they were doing. Um, and really just picking up stuff from them, learning stuff from people that I met, expanding my network and just lit the blue touch paper really from there. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people will kind of see parallels with their own kind of journey in that, you know, you go to an event, whether it's like a, a kind of three day, whatever introduction to property, or it's like a networking event, but how did you kind of go away from that and then go from, wow, this sounds amazing. I've met some great people. Like, how did you move from that thought to the action of actually doing it and then kind of getting it in your head that you can do whatever you needed to do in property? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I wasn't in many ways desperate for a change in circumstances right there and then. And I, I saw the, I, you know, I'm quite cynical by definition, really, by, by my upbringing as well. My dad's pretty cynical. I think he passed it on to me. Um, so I was very cautious of people making big claims that they couldn't necessarily substantiate. But I thought there's definitely something in these these sort of property networking events. I'm going to have to go to them, set myself out a little plan, decided I'd go along to them for six months, um, promised myself I wouldn't put my hand in my pocket apart from to pay the uh, the entrance fees or whatever. And I would just listen to what people had to say. And I, I kind of... I, I knew from the start, really, there was every chance there'd be at least as many interesting people in the room um, with interesting stories and interesting backgrounds as there would be uh, speaking or maybe trying to sell a product from the front of the room. So I decided I was going to have sort of six months, very, very lean, really, just making connections, trying to suss people out. I'm quite a good reader of people um, and was looking for people, really, whose values aligned with mine. Um, and sure enough, during that point, I, I met someone who uh, stood up and he said, I've got a 45-year background in property. Um, I've just had a big fire insurance claim. If anybody would like to come and take a look at uh, the claim, the property in question, and I'll talk you through the whole story. Property's been good to me. I'm happy to give a bit back. Just come up and give me a business card. And I thought, well, you know, how do you turn down an opportunity like that, really? Um, so I connected with him, gave him, went straight up to him, knocking people out the way as I went along, um, gave him my business card and very soon, and realised he lived really quite near to me. And very soon I was round up the property in question, looking at what he'd done and listening to his story, which really was very inspirational and made me really want to carry on, then take those steps in terms of taking action, really. I mean, I had, like a lot, I think also like a lot of people sometimes do, I had capital, as I said, it was sitting there. We're in the post-2008 environment. It wasn't doing anything exciting in the bank. I wanted to diversify away from what I was doing because my own business at the time was relatively capital intensive, but I didn't want all my eggs in that basket. And I just thought, right, if I'm, if I really wanted, to, I've never really struggled to jump and take action. If anything, I'm more impetuous than I should be. 
and I have to slow myself down. So those six months for me, not doing anything, not buying anything, were like 10 years, really, probably to most people. So it taught me or it, it honed the discipline that I'd already built up over over some years. Um, and, but then when I did, when the six months was over, I really did come out of the traps like a greyhound, really. Mm, okay. And then, you know, that, that six months is a long time. To, to kind of not be doing anything and to be planning especially when you're someone who is you know wants to take action like what you know a lot of people say take action you know don't get kind of um uh analysis paralysis and kind of wait for for the right thing kind of get stuck in how like how do you advise people balance that with kind of planning because six months does sound like a long time yeah, yeah. In reflection, I can see, and I wish I'd started six months earlier. I think everybody always sort of says that, really, to an extent. Um, it's just a promise that I'd made to myself, um, and I thought, let's see if I can follow it through, really, because in the same way that I guess you need to delay gratification at some point if you want to have uh, you know, fairly significant wealth or extreme success in life, um, and you've got to be committed to the cause, I think that was just my way of, of doing that to myself, I suppose. And you definitely, you definitely do see, I suppose I was always comfortable in myself in that I would never, I never felt I would struggle to take action when required, but I just wanted to make absolutely sure. Um, as it goes, I think I probably had sussed out what I wanted and needed to from the networking circuit after my first sort of three or four meetings, which probably, you know, one or two months really at the time, I didn't. I learned a lot very quickly, and then from there, it was about sort of going away and looking up other resources and things like that. But as I say, I'm I'm not a gigantic uh, necessarily, not by nature anyway, a gigantic planner. I think if you're going to set big goals and you're going to do something serious, you must have a strategy and you must have a tactical plan to do it. Um, but you do. You're, you're right. You do meet lots of people around who have either done, you know, an incredible amount of education or reading and can always find a way to talk themselves out of doing something. Um, whereas I'm much, because of my background, you know, ultimately risk management is really what I've done throughout my career, whether it's been working for myself or working for somebody else. And I thought, look, if I can get a good handle on a lot of the risks that are out there, this kind of looks too good to be true. Follow the old adage, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. But then after six months, thought, well, hold on. I've met all these people who are doing well at it. You know, it's time to take the first time to do what I promised myself and take the first step. Hmm. And it's really interesting. You mentioned goals and then taking kind of big action to achieve them. So how did you go about setting your goals? Because property was something that was, you know, fairly new to you. You've, you've met a few people, got a few, I guess, comparison levels. But how did you know what you could or couldn't achieve or wanted to achieve without sort of, you know, having it done a couple kind of before as a full time property investor? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And it's a really, I think it's a really interesting subject because people tend to differ and people's experiences and, and even sort of academic work on the subject tends to differ. There's a lot of um, stuff around organizational behavior. If you employ staff, if you run a company around how to motivate people, because it's one of the key issues that you have. And ultimately they tell you that if you set the goals too high if you set things that cannot be achieved, then all it will do is demotivate your workforce. However, there's a, a decent body of people out there who obviously strongly believe in setting massive goals on the basis that if you set a massive goal and you only get halfway there, you're still going to be fairly pleased with the result. Um, and I, I still to this day don't really know where I really sit on that scale because I sort of see both of those things as important i mean i've been at stages over the last few years where i'd sat down set goals sat down with someone maybe a peer um, maybe a mentor and set goals and then achieved them and then felt a bit flat really in the same way that they say um one of the most challenging bits of a professional athlete's career or an olympic gold medalist is actually when they achieve that gold medal the problem can be you're at the top of the mountain and you look out and there isn't the next goal. What can you do to beat that? 
And and from my perspective, that was just a, a, a really good lesson for me because I realized luckily relatively quickly what I hadn't done, which was sit down, review my goals and set more goals ultimately. Um, and there's also two sorts of people as a very broad brush generalization, you know, people who are goal driven and people who aren't goal driven. Um, so it, it really depends what you're driving for. I, I've spent time uh, mentoring people who really haven't necessarily want, had anywhere near the same sorts of goals that I have. And in fact, their problem sometimes has been they haven't even necessarily worked out why they're doing what they're doing. And just setting arbitrary financial, you know, you see a lot of people target, oh, and I want enough to leave my job. I want 3K a month. I want... 10k a month or whatever i don't think those goals are really relevant to the majority of people because i think your goals need to be much more in line with what your values are if you don't know what your values are you can set all the goals in the world and they're not necessarily going to be helpful to you um if they if you happen to be a very goal-driven person it might still work sure but if you don't know why i think you're sort of two steps ahead of yourself really and you need to go back and work out why yeah and it's good you mentioned that because i want to ask you when you when you first started out in property what what was your why when i first started out well i did want to do the capital protection and a bit of income replacement piece i'd worked in some relatively volatile industries you know i worked in the financial services industry pre-2008 in wealth management, in building portfolios, in the offshore market. Um, it's relatively cutthroat. There's lots of competition and you can very easily be on a very good career path one day and then the next day thinking, I don't, I'm not really sure I want to do this anymore. Or more importantly, thinking, I'm not sure this will still look the same in 12 months time. So it's all very well to sort of let it come now and, and enjoy the ride. But ultimately, I've always been, a, I've always probably a weakness in many ways in that I tend to look too far into the future. And when I see something that I don't think is going to sort of captivate my attention or be around in years to come, I guess I start to lose interest a little bit apart from anything else. So there was always a want to do something that would captivate my attention and really appeal to everything that I enjoy the most um, in the long term, because otherwise I feared I'd probably have a a career where which I would flip between working for myself, working for other people, doing things that excited me for three, six, nine, 12 months at a time, and then wish wanting to get onto the next job, the next project, the next whatever, really. Um, so I was, I was definitely motivated to find uh, something I was happy with doing, something that appealed to a lot of the different facets of my personality. So that was, that was probably the why to start with, although I didn't, I wouldn't pretend that I sat down and, and did what I've just said. I didn't sit down and work out what my why was. I just I was just being bombarded with messages, or it seemed to be bombarded with messages about you need to bring in X per month, you need to bring in Y per month. And I guess just got carried along with that wave a little bit to an extent. Wow. I like that. And I think what what I kind of take from that, and I've learned as well from you know, you and other guests on the podcast is that if you set kind of deep meaningful and purpose-driven goals that you know most of the time money isn't deep or meaningful or purpose-driven what you do with it is um or can be you're more likely to last in the long term and and like you said avoid that kind of oh what am I doing next I want to do something else I've reached this I've reached that so I think that's that's great advice for everyone listening so let's kind of um jump back to your story so you had your six months of kind of learning and taking in all the knowledge and, and networking Tell me about your first sort of property deal after that. And if you could run through some of the figures, that would be awesome. Okay, cool. Um, so I've always been a serial, alongside being a bit of a serial entrepreneur, I've always been a bit of a serial JVer as well. So I love working with people. Um, I would just hate the sort of job where I sat on my own all day, even though for some parts of my career I had already done that, which is probably why I knew I, I hated it so much. So I thought, right, okay, what do I need to do? What do I want to do? I've got capital, I've got relatively decent knowledge of uh, structures, companies, tax, stuff like that. Um, so what do I want to do? I want to get into a JV and I'm going to learn a lot from a JV. 
and it so happened that I've, I've always been a big fan of um, partnering with people based on their values and recruiting people based on values and stuff like that. And happily, uh, a friend of mine, uh, his dad and business partner were already involved in property on a, on what looked to me at the time a very serious level. Um, they had 10 properties between them. They had a couple of HMOs. Um, they were really sort of doing the doing. And I had that, that, as I say, that common bond through a mutual friend. And I thought, right, I'll check these guys out. But happily, I also had the sort of nous to structure the deal such that I protected myself because I was the one putting money in. I was the one putting my name on mortgages. Uh, so I decided, right, I'm going to get, I'm going to get involved. I've got this capital effectively burning a hole in my pocket. And as I say, because I'd been, I was, guess I was a bit like an elastic band at that stage. And I was so enthusiastic to get started. I just thought, right, let's now go out and effectively within about four months had spent all the capital that I had. Um, so that bought six properties, didn't do anything incredibly uh, clever around the purchase side of things in as much as bought them all with mortgages, um, didn't use any bridging, didn't buy cash and refinance, didn't do anything like that. Just bought them all with mortgages, bought them all on two or three year term mortgages in the knowledge that I was buying at some decent prices or certainly thought I was buying at some decent prices. And then I would refinance in two or three years time, get all the money out and a bit more and enjoy the rent roll in the interim sort of thing and enjoy a sort of safe return on my investment. Um, so, so I could I could pick one out of those six, or I'll give you a brief rundown of I suppose the best yardstick really is is where they are today as well. Some of those deals, um, one of, one of them we paid asking price for a bungalow that needed a hell of a lot of work. Um, that was 160k. Um, ended up spending some of this was used on doing some marketing and doing some bits of setting up a, a, a company and stuff like that. So it wasn't all spent on the reefer, but we spent 63K on it. Um, that didn't sell at the end of 2012, it was, uh, which we were trying to resell it for 250K. So it would have made a small profit on that. Instead, we rented it and have sale agreed it actually in the last few weeks for 300 grand. Um, wow, nice. So that's, that's been a nice return, but then that's a lot of that's the capital growth over the sort of that's about six or seven year period now. Um, and then a house that was split into two flats, which I have come to quite like as a model. And I know a few people who do that uh, almost as their only strategy quite successfully. Um, this one had already been put into two flats and looked at it and thought, well, hold on, this is a sort of nine, 10% yielding property. There's two in there for the price of one. You've got two sets of tenants, so you're spreading your risk a little bit. Um, it was right at the back of our hospital, so I thought it's always going to let. And sure enough, still got that one today. Um, bought that for 100, having the interim done about an 8K refurb on the top floor flat, and it's worth about 140 today um, and brings in about £1,000 a month. So it's a very nice yielder. Um, and a decent, it, there's also another lesson in there though, in that it wasn't the easiest in the world to finance, obviously mortgaged it on the way in. Uh, at the time, the mortgage market looked very, very different to how it does now. Um, had to finance it on what was called a special situations mortgage because it was a house split into two flats and it was only Kent Reliance at the time, certainly according to the brokers who were really interested in that sort of thing. Nowadays, it could be refinanced with one of many lenders realistically um another one bought for 69 that was repossession that was the one where i probably i learned the most about refurbing and wet work in as much as it needed a decent refurb on it i went and did an intensive plastering course um so five days down in dartford a great place called able skills um i'm not a massively practical hands-on sort of person so it was a real challenge for me um, worked out a few things in that week, one of them being I didn't ever want to be a plasterer. Um, but, it, but it was great for learning about contractor mindsets, about project management, um, and also about some of the technicalities around plaster work and how to tell whether people have done a good job, stuff like that. Um, 
let that one quite quickly at 550 a month. It was worth about 90 at the time, but we'd overspent on it. So really, so we we're in for about 80 total, including costs. And it's worth, was worth about 90. It's now worth about 115 today. And has still got the same tenant in that we put into that day, who's been just one of the most fantastic tenants you could ever wish for. So, so that's relatively successful. Um, one of the other ones was uh, an HMO. So one of the things I definitely wanted to do with some of my capital was HMO. Um, took a big old three bed Victorian terrace, um, massive front room, so big we put an ensuite in there. Did a decent amount of work on it, spent about 18K, uh, bought it for 100. Um, that let very, very easily. I must say, before I bought that property, I went round some of the HMOs in that area at the time, and that was also near a hospital. And I was just stunned at how low the standard of the shared accommodation was. I couldn't believe there were doctors living in some of the rooms that I went in to look at that were empty. Um, and I just thought this is just going to be so easy. It's just going to be so easy to beat this standard. Um, and sure enough, it let, it had 99 plus percent occupancy for about four years. Um, and then it started to struggle a little bit. Uh, and over those four years, I'd sort of changed my views on HMO quite significantly. So I was quite happy to, I backed it out to um, a housing trust that I do some work with who like HMO style properties. Um, and in the interim, I've actually sold that one. So uh, bought it for 100, spent 18, really good. It was grossing out about 2,200 a month for, for a number of years. So it was a, a good returner. And have now sold it to 140 for 140 to another investor who is happy to rekindle it as a full-blown HMO when the housing trust contract expires, which is a nice deal because it worked for me. Um, yeah, he got it a little bit cheaper than maybe could have sold it for 150. Um, he got a little bit of a, a bargain, but ultimately, he's someone who I hope to do business with again. So hopefully, there's uh, there's more mileage in that deal. Yeah, and these were um, all in Birmingham, South Birmingham. They were they were in a, a mixture of um, Tamworth, Northeast Birmingham, because round by me, you know, relatively high value, low lowish yield sort of stuff. I did my uh, due diligence beforehand. I was very keen on Tamworth, particularly because it had great transport links. They were doing lots and lots of just opened a massive uh, John Lewis at Ventura Park. I know the sort of level of detail those guys go into before they spend tens of millions on opening a new store um, and just thought I'd piggyback that really, to be honest. Nuneaton, which was basically the closest, really quite high yield area to me at the time. And also Burton on Trent, a little bit further up the A38 for me. So they were, they were already, I, my, my first rule was within half an hour of home, although Burton on Trent probably about 45 minutes. So broke, broke that one pretty quickly. Um, and they were, and the one I've left out so far was um, another HMO. So this was a, a real sort of old classic. I, at the time, I was doing um, what what some of the speakers and some of the people I've been networking with have been talking about, going into a lot of agencies, trying to make a connection with the agent, uh, trying to convince them I was a serious buyer. Um, and so happened that this one dropped quite lucky. It was a property that sold at 187K in 2006, and it was on the market for 170. The agent rang me one morning and he said, uh, it's dropped to 140, she wants to move it. So a really significant drop overnight. Um, and I managed to buy it for 125. Um, spent about five grand on that to turn it into an HMO uh, because it was already in pretty, pretty good condition and it was perfectly laid out. And I've still got that one to this day. And today, bricks and mortar is probably worth about two twenty-five. So it was a, it really was a really genuinely good deal on the way in, um, and has let relatively well since as well. It's town centre location, so it's a strong, strong letter. And how did you get it for one hundred twenty-five grand when she already dropped it to one hundred forty? Uh, it was one of those classic situations where I'd been listening to what people have been saying about motivated sellers and stuff like that what did the vendor need she had already seen a property she wanted and had tacitly agreed a deal on at 95 grand um she wanted uh 
she wanted that more than she cared about the money too much particularly she had no mortgage she was unencumbered and the 30 grand she could walk away with still left her with more than enough to move in completely uh refurnish and left her, had had some money left over so what was important to her at the time was certainty and moving quickly and ultimately i persuaded her that's what i could offer and followed through with that wow so these first sort of six deals were bought with you with pretty much all of your own money right that's well as i say they were mortgaged primarily so i split my i split my capital pot amongst six deposits basically but yeah all of that was all of that was my own capital so you know from those six first six properties roughly how much net profit in your pocket was that bringing in a month once you had them all up and running yeah, about three grand probably in the way bear in mind it was a jv so there are other people to pay but my cut was the way i'd structured it was about 3k a month um so it was good good uh way of getting to that that wasn't really by design of thinking i must have three grand a month it's just the way that it ended up uh, breaking down really that's that's so interesting you spent those six month kind of pre-sabbatical learning kind of being an exile a monk of property and then <laughs> you bought six six properties one for every month you were you were a monk and then you've, <laughs> you've kind of got more than you know financial freedom give or take for, for a lot of people like why so so firstly did you get any like formal education not the networking kind of little bits like that but did you go to any classes or like paid for kind of big property events no do you know what i didn't i didn't i uh i was i was uh, i spent a lot of that time i guess i saw the education industry property education industry for what i thought it was at the time which was a big hyped up neurolinguistic programming uh, smoke-filled arena and I went so far to the end of that scale I was such a skeptic that at that point I wouldn't have paid anybody to do anything for me um, spent my time there for a few years really until I continued expanding my network and met people and met people who really had very similar values to me some of them had done bits and bobs of training they'd never really done it as a serious thing um, some of them had spent lots of money on being trained. By that, at that point, I'd been mentored in business by a mentor from Warwick Business School where I went and did my MBA. And I was much more open-minded than just saying, cool, all this stuff's no good, which now nowadays I know to be wrong. But I pretty much did that, um, well, as I say, self-taught plus, plus JV. And the JV really, the one thing it taught me was pretty quickly... Um, the guys I JV'd with, um, we didn't hit the figures that we'd we'd uh, we'd ironed out. We'd calculate them quite carefully. I'd made it pretty clear to them from the way I'd structured the deal that it would be them who missed out if we didn't hit our numbers. Um, and unfortunately for them, really, either they'd overpromised or we just didn't hit the numbers, and therefore they didn't do fantastically out of the deal. They still did okay. They didn't put any of their own money in, but they put plenty of time in and plenty of effort in and haven't been massively rewarded for that. Um, and they had done bits and bobs. They'd been on courses. They'd got some uh, CDs about lease options. I remember that they lent to me that I'd listened to in the in the, all the car journeys I was doing. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was kind of hell-bent at the time on I'm going to do it myself. I, I like to learn by doing um, what I'm going to do is do the – I'd made my mind up what I would do is do the big stuff right. So I'd make sure I went into these deals at the right sort of price so that ultimately that was what really kept the risk down for me um, and and just use that as the, and then thought, well, you know, get the big stuff right. Don't sweat the small stuff too much was kind of my attitude at the time. But uh, I, it's also fair to say the whole educational landscape has also changed fairly significantly since then. There's so many more choices out there these days. There's quite a lot more transparency. Facebook at the time was not doing much at all in property, whereas now <clears throat> there's just a huge, huge community out there of people. So it, it's kind of difficult to compare then and now to an extent as well. Sure. And then, you know, briefly, because we could talk for hours on this, you know, I, <laughs> you know, people come to me often and they say, Tej, like 
what um what education provider should i go with you know how how should i start my education i, I have my own answer um and you know i've only been on one and i've, I've ex- you know experienced a few others through other people if someone came to you and said that you know in in today end of 2018 what how would you answer that i think i'd be very keen to find out from them what they're expecting to achieve from that because ultimately I always say to people, and I I like you, I get asked that question an awful lot. I always say to people, ultimately, it's going to be about your expectations. What what do you think you're going to get out of it? Because if you're going to go on a a cookie cutter course that's been delivered a whole number of times by the same person, is that going to be, is that going to fit your needs necessarily? Some of it will, some of it won't, ultimately. If you think you're going to go on something that's going to tell you what to do, because I've had lots of people sit in front of me and basically say, look, I want basically, I want to be told what strategy to follow. Well, no one certainly of integrity is going to tell you what to do. Because the first thing I say to those people is you can't abdicate your responsibility for your own actions and your own future. And if you're looking to do that, then I strongly suggest you look at what's driving you to abdicate it and start taking control yourself. Because ultimately, when the chips are down, particularly, everyone else is going to be out the window. Um, and ultimately, it's going to be up to you to to make the tough decisions that you need to if, if things ever go wrong. So, you know, you've got to do, you know, I think, go back to the basics of why people buy training or, or any product, service, good, whatever. Ultimately, it, they buy from people they know, like, and trust. Um, so... I think it's important for them to realize why they make a purchasing decision. I think it's important for them to be aware of um, due diligence and things like that, because they need to do, it's amazing how many people don't even sort of Google somebody's name, look them up at company's house before they consider spending thousands and thousands of pounds with them. Um, And I just, but ultimately I don't think they can abdicate what's really a massive decision to the likes of you or me or, or anybody really absolutely great advice so let's kind of zoom out and, and kind of come to where we are today so kind of my question i guess is twofold so the first part is what does your portfolio of properties that you currently hold that are being rented out what does it look like in terms of numbers and i guess size okay so there's around about 150 units in it to this day what um, 150 yeah wow yeah. That's that's uh, that's quite a lot. <laughs> it's a decent it's a decent number, but it's got it's got a lot further to go. I hope. Wow. Um, so it the the average property in it looks like value circa ninety to hundred k, rent circa five hundred to six hundred pounds a month. So decent yield, um, almost exclusively single lets. Although within those single lets, I would probably divide them into flats, um, which I don't do lots of because I don't I dislike leasehold, um, but I do own a couple of blocks of flats. Um, so I'm quite happy with freehold flats. I think they're quite a good strategy. Um, vanilla single lets, if you like, and then some that are on lease arrangements to housing trusts, um, similar arrangements to people like G4S, um, Ministry of Justice, things like that. So it's a blend of all of those things. And... I must emphasize as well that I don't own a hundred percent of that outright. I've JV'd with people throughout my journey for whole lots of different reasons. Obviously at at the point where I bought those six that I just was talking about, I was out of money. So I needed a different kind of JV at that point. Um, And I've, I've done that using, you know, some of my own capital recycling, some of my own capital, but also, Lots and lots of it, over 10 million quid's worth of purchases now in JVs. So that's uh, that's a, a loose summary of it, really. Wow. And that's 10 million is the total value of properties that you have purchased with people in JVs? So, yeah, over 10 million pounds worth of JVs and then some that I've bought on my, on my own. Um, I've been very, very cautious about buying on my own, particularly of late, because... I've got num- because I've got a number of joint venture partners and that's that's worked out well because ultimately I'm not beholden to any single one of them. Um, it, it spreads my risk nicely. Again, like I said, I'm all about risk with the risk management side of things. 
Um, but I've done, uh, I, I don't want there to be massive conflicts of interest between, between what I do. So I don't want my JV partners thinking I'm cherry picking the best stuff for myself. I, I don't do that. The only reason I ever buy one for myself is if I get a deal put in front of me that is, has got to be handled so quickly that I haven't even got time to go out to partners and get the level of due diligence they would want. So I'm perversely more comfortable taking risk with my own money than I am with partners' money, uh, which probably is what what, made, what has led me to have quite a lot of success with my JV partners because they've been happy and they've all come back for more and more in the long run. Wow. And I want to I want to kind of delve into the JV aspect. But before that, I must ask, what, what kind of profit of rent are you getting per month from, you know, your share of these 150 properties? Sure. So rent roll overall, and they're not all let at the moment. There's a number. I mean, I bought 55 units this year, this calendar year to date. So there's wow. been a rel- relatively decent expansion. So I would have only been on sort of 95 odd at the back end of last year. So about 20 odd of those are works in progress at the moment at different stages. Um, We're really quite good at letting property quite quickly to good tenants, which is a skill that had to hone very, very quickly, really. So um, not all of them are full at the moment. When they are, the whole rent roll looks like uh, something approaching 800K a year. And that's your share? No, that's the whole rent roll. So my share is it's around the 50% mark of that. Wow. And, you know, buying 55 properties in a year is not just like incredible. It's like super, super incredible, right? Like I've spoken to a lot of people, done a lot of networking and got people on my podcast. And I thought, you know, 20 in a year was quick. Like, so, you know, you ran out of money after the kind of first six, you did tons of jvs but really you know how did you buy 55 this year and how on earth did you find you know that many jv partners and and what is your jv sort of configuration with them um so it varies from from partnership to partnership so i suppose i was lucky in that i had existing business relationships and have always been a good relationship builder and a decent networker outside of property so uh, there's no cookie cutter, one size fits all. Not all of those JV vehicles have the same strategy. That works out really nicely for me because my risk is spread across a whole number of investment companies, uh, a whole number of different strategies. So they, those, to give you an idea of the, the the differential in the risk, for one of them, we would buy properties with bridging. We would use a lot of bridging and then refinance them out onto term. Um, getting some really, really chunky amounts of 90% of the purchase price would be funded by a bridging lender. Um, about as risky as you can get on the single let side of things, really. One of the other companies is funded by someone who's not interested in mortgage financing at all. He's only interested in cash, um, doesn't want to take any leverage out. So I get a nice sort of blended spread of risk across that whole spectrum i suppose um how did i do it well worked up to it to to a large extent you know in order to get to 95 at the back end of last year i still had to be years where i bought 30 and 20 and 15 and stuff like that so i didn't just sort of get out of bed and buy 55 from a cold start that would be that would be phenomenal but also you know those 55 the or the ones that are are not optimized yet the ones that are not bringing in rent yet the backbone of the portfolio having a hundred plus behind me that are let that are we are collecting the rent on they can service bridging finance they can service overheads and still leave some money left over so you know that 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 engine has provided funds for growth ultimately you know everybody starts somewhere and you have to start with one um I had those three, luckily, before I started and bought six. But at that point, when I had nine properties, uh, and of course, six of those were already in JVs, then I really then really started to learn because ultimately when you're out of capital is when you really get, you have to be resourceful. Otherwise, if you haven't sort of managed your equity pool, just like I didn't in those days, 
you know, you've got to be resourceful. Otherwise, you're you're done buying realistically. So then with these kind of JVs, when, when you're out of cash, are you bringing the time, the deal, the resources, and they're bringing the money and you split the ownership? Or how, how are you working it? Yeah, absolutely. So different different equity shares, depending on what people are putting in. Some of them, um, people are funding with equity, but they're also funding with debt. So they'll be able to put lend a slab of money to a limited company at an agreed rate of interest. Um, so the company has already got maybe 10 properties in it so it can service the debt it can service the debt quite comfortably and we can use more funds so the jv partner's got a good deal um at this end i I look after the whole end-to-end process but obviously don't do that on my own i have a services company that that back me up uh with some brilliant people in it and ultimately we can sit and deals really come to me these days i'm happy to say although I could work harder at that, and I've, it's probably the thing I've worked the hardest at over the years. Um, but I, I decided very early on, from what I could see of people, they found it hard to get deals. And I thought, well, if I could solve that problem first, then I've really potentially got a proposition. Um, so I worked really, really hard at, at, so, at understanding where do people buy discount property from? What are the circumstances that are required? How can I be the best buyer of discount property in the whole of the country that ultimately was was my goal early on i'm not there yet but hopefully one day i will be there um wow and you know how do you find because this is a common question that a lot of people ask you know when they're new in property they you know finding deals finding investment are sort of two of the hardest aspects but i think mm-hmm. and from personal experience the mindset of finding an investment is is quite a a big challenge so like where did you meet these people who said I'll, I'll give you 100 grand 200 grand you know whatever it is give me 10 percent over the year you know go buy a property with it happy days for you just give me 10 percent. i'd love to work with you adam where do you find these people well I, I think you know you've got to look at what what's your value proposition where are you where's your skill set you know mine is i had a strong academic background i worked in finance i had credibility just by default, really. Um, and effectively, I, I leveraged that credibility. Um, I combined that with an attitude to sort of do what I said I was going to do. Um, and then I just went out and took the action and went out and did it with an eye on the downside. Um, and ultimately, rightly or wrongly, when it comes to proof of concept, if people can see one or two things that you've done, they're normally quite happy to accept that You've done, I, I guess, people people often look and think, oh, that guy's got three properties. That's three more than I've got or two more than I've got. So it puts them in a certain, on a certain pedestal. Um, I look at people I know who've got 400, 1,000 properties, more, whatever, and think, wow, I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm going to get there one day. Um, but if you position yourself in the right way, uh, if, you're put, if you put the legwork in, if you do what you say you're going to do, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, pass out things that aren't really specific to me. I, I was able to leverage my background, um, my education to an extent. But the point really for, for the listeners is everybody's got something they can leverage. They've just got to work out what that is, work out what their proposition is and ultimately execute it. And, you you know, some of the the biggest and best companies in the world that recruit people that, that a lot of people would would kill to work for those guys quite often knock candidates back eight times, 10 times, 15 times. It's the people who can keep getting up and keep knocking on the door that ultimately get through the door and get those opportunities and finding deals and finding investment is exactly the same. You aren't going to go out and do that in one day, one week, one, whatever, but there's loads and loads of channels in ways you can do it. There's loads of people you can learn from um, who quite often give up their time for free or we'll, we'll speak at events and maybe just give you that bit of ignition that you need, those ideas you can kind of uh, run with, I guess. Wow. Excellent tips. You know, persistence, tenacity are key to success in any business, any job, in anything, right? So if we narrow down on that, you know, like physically, where, you know, what should people be doing to meet these people? What kind of spaces do they exist in? Yeah, yeah, good question. So some of mine had come from 
um, my business background and people that I'd done business with in the past who were satisfied. So if you're going in from from scratch, really, to try and meet people, I think I'm a big fan of trying to network outside of property networking because go back to what I said earlier about people buy off people they know, like, and trust. Um, I think the other side of property networking can be people can sometimes have unrealistic unrealistic expectations about the level of returns they might get on their money. Um, sometimes they're over-promised, really, to an extent. And the point I always make to people, and of course, you know, there have I got an agenda in making this point? Arguably, yes, I have, but I also happen to think it's very true. Ultimately, do you want to lend money out to someone at 12 or even 18% a year who's only got a 50% chance of paying you back? Or would you rather lend it at a lower rate on a much more solid covenant? I mean, if people didn't, you know, understand the mindset of investors, why have we got, you know, billions and trillions of pounds in this country parked in bank accounts that are paying 0.1% at the moment, you know, because people like security, they like certainty. So, and they also think along those lines of those old cliches, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So there is a proposition out there for, you know, offering lower returns with more certainty. What can you put up in terms of collateral? As you said, what have you, what, what has anybody got to give? They've got time to give, they've got enthusiasm to give. Investors love people who are going to do the legwork as long as they're well protected. And if you can offer something to put in the deal of worth, doesn't have to be money, um, could, could be anything, could be a, a guarantee of something, uh, it could be something else that's important to that investor, then they're going to buy off you if they know, like, and trust you. So, yeah, out, outside of property networking, that could be, you've got to play to your skill set, really. If your skill set is in other business, then other business networking. If your skill set is in sport, you know, going out and talking to, there's lots of uh, semi-professional and professional sports people who've got bucket loads of money to invest. Um, if your skill set is something else, go out and leverage the skills that you've got. Absolutely. Solid, solid advice. Now, um, when it comes to um, like your area, aka Birmingham, what are your thoughts? You know, and this is a very broad question, so you know, focus it wherever you like. What are your thoughts on the area of Birmingham as a place to invest in, and how are you finding the market? Yeah, it's great, great question. Um, I should say, you know, my first forays into properties that were half an hour away, forty-five minutes away made me realize that actually managing stuff remotely was nowhere near as much of an issue as some people tend to think it is. So since then, I've spread my wings much, much more broadly. So I'm much more active quite deliberately in markets that maybe haven't done anywhere near as well as Birmingham in the last few years, let's say. Um, I'm rather trying to get involved in markets that are in a much earlier stage of a growth cycle, really. Um, but obviously have got uh, interest in letting agencies locally know lots of developers locally. And so I do have, and I obviously look like we all do, look at the properties that are around me that are being developed, look at what's going on. So I definitely have a view. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine is a large developer around here and he he pointed out to me the other day, you know, we've gone from £260 a square foot in central Birmingham to 400 pounds plus um, within about four or five years. Now that's a 50% jump, uh, greater than 10% a year returns. If you just look at the fundamentals in the economy in the last 10 years since the crash, returns have been quite low. Stock market returns have been lower than they historically have been. The interest rate has been obviously historically low. Um, so 10% in that environment is a vast, vast overachievement. And I look at what you can take away from places that are more mature in the cycle. I was one of the people getting shouted down in sort of late 2015, saying that London was way, way, way too hot. As soon as I heard people were putting sealed bids in for stuff, I, I was telling all my friends, all the ones who would listen, sell out, sell out of London now, get out of there as quickly as you can. Happily, some of them listened to me. 
and made some really, really good money and went out to suburbs where the market's a lot less volatile. So I see that cycle. We have this kind of re, this kind of need to group the property market together as one thing, which realistically, whilst it might have moved downwards in in some uh, synergy in 2008 because of the credit crisis, ultimately, actually, it's really quite regionalised and actually comes down to areas, towns, villages, even streets at a certain level. So London's moved at its own pace. Cambridge and Oxford, a little bit further behind from London and not not quite as volatile. Um, Bristol, a little bit behind that. And Birmingham, probably just a, a tiny shade behind Bristol. Um, so I think there's probably one or two, two and a half years left in this upcycle. I don't really have a scientific um, reason for that. That's just what it feels like to me from what I've seen in all the other markets that have been playing out over the last 10 years. I think I should caveat that by saying, depending on what happens in Brexit, all bets are off, realistically, anything could happen. Um, but I, I'm not keen on getting involved in a really, really hot market at or near the end. Um, and that is really broad because that doesn't cover the whole of Birmingham. That would really cover prime central Birmingham, Kidbeth, um, places where huge blocks of flats are going up there's going to be blood on the carpet at some point in the near future, in my opinion, in those areas. There's still some super areas around, like some of the suburbs, maybe Acox Green would be a classic, uh, a flat market for seven or eight years that's only recently started to pick up, um, quite near the city centre. Um, Ladywood is another interesting one because historically been a very, very tough area, but ultimately B1 postcodes the, the sheer geography of it and if you look at certainly you can learn some lessons from london but even other cities like nottingham historically those really tough areas that are really inner city eventually gentrify at some point and i think ladywood's definitely already started doing that really really interesting points wow there's lots there's lots to think about um and you know speaking of kind of things to think about you know, your portfolio is big, you know, undeniably, right? And everyone says that property is a passive, you know, kind of speech marks in the air now, in, <laughs> in the investment class or type. So, you know, I've spoken to people who have 10 properties, 15 properties, say, yeah, you know what, every now and then I get a call, I sort it out, the odd void, the odd tenant trashing it, you know, it's, it's fairly passive. With you having 150 properties, like how passive is property for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess the thing is, I'm running a property business ultimately. So, you know, property is my stock in trade. It just so happens that a lot of that stock I want to hold on to for the long term. Um, so, you know, getting yourself into that many deals, sourcing that many deals, um, getting yourself into those relationships, that takes work. Financing with all the different vehicles that I've got to juggle across with their different strategies, that takes work. Um, there's a lot of brain power involved in that, but ultimately I'm looking at um, things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis all of the time, reviewing them and thinking, right, what can I delegate? Someone else could, could should someone else be doing that job? Uh, how do I make it? How can I empower someone? How can I give them the tech? How can I give them the training to do that bit of my job? And then that keeps freeing up my time to be able, you know, despite all of this, I still have, a day to give to running partners in property with Sue, for example. I still make time for people that I want to talk to. Um, I'm still able to go and do uh, take days out of the office and stuff like that and work from my phone. So um, whilst I wouldn't, it's definitely not a passive existence for me at the moment, I guess I could turn around tomorrow and say, well, look, let's just have everything managed by somebody else. Um, let's use the stock. Let's play out the stock that's in my work in progress pipeline at the moment and then go away and live on a desert island. I, I could do that, but ultimately that's not really what gets me out of bed in the morning. So yeah. I'm quite, I'm really quite comfortable doing what I'm doing. I love the, uh, I love the challenge to it. I love going in different directions and I love, I love ultimately delivering on uh, things that I've told people can be done. So I'm very, very, very happy doing what I'm doing. It is out of choice. It's not out of um, inability to make it passive. 
Fantastic. And is there an app, platform, website, resource, something that you can't live without? <laughs> the the internet in general. Um, yeah, we do we we do we do quite a lot of stuff um, with some tech solutions. Um, I'm a big fan of Open Rent for landlords. I think it's really the one piece of kit that I've seen really change the game in the last few years. Um, primarily because uh, of its really really broad marketing reach. You've actually seen doorsteps in the sale market do a very similar thing. You know, offer you portal access very, very cheaply. That's effectively what it does. So open rent's been a massive cost saver, time saver. When I first discovered it a few years ago and I had a flat that was empty and the agent had had it empty for a couple of months, um, put it on open rent myself and let it within six days. Wow. And that, that sort of gave me an idea that actually open rent could be really quite important to what I do. Um, because we do a lot of stuff remotely, um, Viewer is also quite an important tool to me. I think you've got to be quite cautious with it because ultimately you're contracting out your product, your viewings, your whatever to an unknown third party. So you've got to be quite, there are some absolutely brilliant viewers out there, people who do it. There are also some that maybe aren't the most honest. So you need to be a bit cautious, but it's, it's dead important. And ultimately there's no way we could operate the office here the way that we do if we didn't have a lot of cloud-based stuff. So I use a lot of Google, uh, the Google suite of stuff. I use Dropbox. All of those things really are things that, you know, help the businesses run on a day-to-day basis. Great, great selection there. So one for any landlords out there, if your letting agent is not doing a good job, chuck it on open rent, see what you can do. Um, So Adam, this brings us to almost the end of the podcast. We've been speaking for an hour and I think every single one of your answers is just full of knowledge that I'm going to have to listen to this again to kind of make sure I've taken it all in because there's so many actionable insights from everything you've said so firstly thank you so much for that um let's go into the quick fire round so I'm going to put you on the spot here now I'm going to ask you top three things times three so nine questions in all right so okay what are your top three tips for JVing with someone Due diligence has got to be number one. Um, Do what you say you're going to do has got to be number two and have a plan A, B and C and communicate it to the JV partner uh, from the start has got to be number three. Great. And then what three things in your life have contributed greatly to your success? Anything? Well, first of all, I have to say my education. Um, Second of all, I have to say luck realistically um and third of all i have to say my family particularly my wife who is just incredibly supportive of everything that i do awesome and if you had to give three tips to people who are new in property investment what would you what would you say uh, i'd say don't give up keep not you know keep knocking at the door because so many people get to the hump and then fall off the wagon so tenacity we already talked about i would say do your research. You know, you don't have to take massive risks. If it doesn't feel right in your in your gut, then probably listen to your gut ultimately. And I'd say go and try out, you know, the broader, particularly the independent networking circuit, because there are lots and lots of good people out there who are more than willing to give you the benefit of their experience uh, if you're humble enough to listen. Wow. Amazing. Great tips, Adam. And again, look, thank you so much. There's so much knowledge in this podcast. Um, I'm super excited to get this one out. I think it's going to get a lot of listens. Now, um, just to remind everyone, Adam, just like all the other guests on the podcast, is giving away two, you know, 15 minute, 30 minute slots for coaching, mentoring, analyzing your deals, having a chat, whatever it is. Um, In order to win them, all you have to do is like the Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, uh, leave a review on iTunes or the podcast app or the Facebook page. Let me know and I'll enter you into a competition. So, you know, if you've listened to the podcast this far, I think there's a lot that you and Adam could talk about and a lot that he could help with. So that's going to be awesome. Um, so Adam, if people want to get hold of you, um, what, what should they do just to have a chat or just to see you or anything? Yeah, sure. So I'm one of the moderators on the UK Property Traders Facebook group. So I'm regularly on there. Facebook's a great platform to get me on. 
check me out on LinkedIn as well. That's a, a great way to do it. Or if you can make it to one of the Partners in Property events, then come and see me in the flesh. And I always try and make time for as many people as I can during that day. Normally, quite a few people want a piece of me on that day, but I, I normally try and manage to get around everyone and give everyone a couple of minutes at least. So that's uh, in South Birmingham, just off the M42, Junction 4, Shirley Golf Club. Uh, our next one is 10th of January 2019. Awesome. I've been to the events. They are good. Adam also wears a, a nicely ironed shirt every event. So um, <laughs> you'll, you'll definitely see him. So look, Adam, again, thank you so much for your time. Tez, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.